Hi, and a warm welcome to Season 4 of Brown Don't Frown Podcast. I hope you're well and safe, wherever you are. BDF's first episode went live in October 2019, and since then, BDF has brought three seasons and over 40 incredible guests and their stories straight to your ears. I hope you've been able to learn from them as much as I have. I am your host, Tanya Hardcastle. Brown Don't Frown spotlights the experiences of a diverse range of women and brings new perspectives. I hope you finish each episode feeling more rounded, energised and inspired. The BDF community has grown so much over the past year and a half. Thank you to all of you who have subscribed to the podcast and left a review. As a self-taught independent podcaster, that means a lot to me. If you want to stay updated on the latest news, podcast episodes and exclusives, you can sign up to the newsletter by clicking the link in the episode notes. That's all from me for now. Enjoy season four. Today's guest is Shalina Patel. She is an award-winning history teacher, the head of teaching and learning at a secondary school in Northwest London, and the founder of the History Corridor on Instagram. She also provides training for schools on how to decolonize the curriculum, embed diversity, and create an intersectional school experience for students. First of all, welcome Shalina, and thank you so much for being here today. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. I am a huge fan of yours and I've been following your Instagram page, um, your History Corridor page, uh, and also watched your recent radio appearance with uh, being interviewed by Greg James. So you're obviously making big moves uh, and it's amazing to see. And I'm sure we'll go into that a bit more uh, later on, though. Firstly, it would be great uh, if you could, uh, for the benefit of the listeners, tell us a bit more about yourself, where you're from and, and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, I'm Shalina. I grew up in northwest London, like many of us did. Um, I loved, you know, I loved being a student at school, really, really enjoyed it. But I think it's one of those things where you have a lot of reflections on your time at school as you get older and kind of realise maybe the things that were missing from your school experience, which I guess directly translates into the into the work that I do um I loved history it was my favorite subject uh, so I did a history degree at LSE um so I was in London for those uh, for those three years and I volunteered in schools um in local schools um during my uh, time at university and did what did the total opposite to everyone else so if anyone is familiar with anyone that went to LSE they will know that everyone is obsessed with um internships and being a lawyer and all those kinds of things but that just I knew that that wasn't for me um and so I I, I yeah it just kind of all happened I decided right I'll be I'll, you know I'll train to be a history teacher maybe I'll do it for you know a few years and then do something else I had no idea what exactly that would be but 12 years later uh here we are <laughs> and I'm still I'm still teaching history like you said I'm head of teaching and learning now um at my school but yeah it's been um it's just, it's as big a surprise to me as it is to, any, to anyone really that I've yeah I did not intend to for this to be my path but it's happened yeah I feel like the best careers always seem to just happen like you just sort of fall into it and then you end up having a fantastic career journey and it sounds like you've had a, a really amazing career so far it's interesting that you're talking about LSE because I did my um, my my postgraduate degree there not my undergraduate ah. 
But um, I had some friends who went and did their undergraduate there and they said they described exactly how you've just said, um, mm. very focused on like corporate careers, like banking, lawyering and things like that. And yeah, when I did my postgrad, it was exactly the same. Um, I did a I did a master's in, in law and it was very much, oh, we need to get my training contract, that sort of vibe. Um, it's yeah. something that I, I thought about for a while, but then I've fallen into, you know, a, a different career path now. And I'm so thankful for it because I feel like I would not have been fulfilled as a lawyer that corporate lifestyle because a lot, a lot of the stories that I hear it, it doesn't sound particularly positive or rewarding in that sense um, oh definitely my you yeah. know as as with everyone who goes to LSE you end up with lots of friends who are lawyers <laughs> basically and yeah exactly. like, definitely can definitely vouch for the fact that it's not you know it's ba- and I always do you know what I always say this to the students because obviously there's so many students that gravitate towards wanting to do law at university mm. and I always say to them guys it, you're not going to be Harvey Specter like that's what they think but but, but it's true isn't it when they're when you're at school you have no understanding of what a lawyer is except what you see on tv it's just so glamorized and it's just not the case glamorous so completely glamorous and I always I literally always say something like it's not going to be like Harvey Specter trust me I have friends who are lawyers it's really not that at all it's more like you know getting home at 3 a.m having to go back into the office at 8 sort of thing um but yeah they just I don't know what it is like we need to have a like a tv show that has a realistic um, is, a, is a realistic sort of you know, presentation of what it's actually like to be a lawyer. Yeah, yeah definitely. That would we be definitely need it. <laughs> Yeah, we definitely do. Um, and I wanted to ask, I mean, what do you love most about teaching? You've been a teacher for 12 years now and it, you must have seen a lot of things, experienced <laughs> a lot of things. And is there anything yeah, that stands definitely. out to be to you in particular? I think it just, it is always the students. Mm. The students are the absolute best thing about teaching. And I think, do you know what, it's, they will just you know I mean, we were just talking earlier weren't we? I have had such a mad day today um, yeah. like I, I was in school and I taught uh, taught my year 10s period five and you know we ended up having going on a real tangent talking about how none of us have ever eaten a turnip for example and it was just you know it was just a, the, the context of it the context of it in my defense was we were talking about the, the Elizabethans and how the Elizabethans brought two great vegetables to our shores uh, in the form of the tomato and the potato so that's how it started. And then one of the students said, Miss, have you ever eaten a turnip? I said, do you know what? I don't think I have. <laughs> I don't think and I have just, either, actually. No, <laughs> and it just it. ended up, and then they were all sort of looking at me, what, what does a turnip look like? And I said, I actually, I'm not sure. <laughs> it was, you know what? And you just have those kinds of conversations. The same class the other day, they were coming in and I said, oh, good morning. I say, morning, morning. And then one of them just looked at me and said, what is good morning? What is it? <laughs> what is it? Why does it exist? Yeah, and we had this weird kind of, conversation about like the so like society and how you know how it's impolite to not greet people and do you know what I mean you just have these really random conversations with students but I think it's also just you know what I'm so lucky that I you know I, I work in a school with absolutely brilliant students I also the best thing about being a teacher you know for me obviously it's about teaching history primarily but also I really I take my role as a form tutor really really seriously as well mm. um, and I love I absolutely love that. Um, So I had my first form for five years and now my second form, it's going to be their seventh year with me. And obviously they're now in year 13 and going to university. And it's just, it's just, we're, you know, we're doing a lot of reminiscing at the moment and I can already see I'm going to be absolutely devastated when they leave. Um, Oh no. But it's such, it's so nice. And it's so nice to see, you know, my form, my first form, you know, they're, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, they sort of get in touch with me via LinkedIn and stuff like that. And I just see the amazing things that they're doing. And it's just incredible to, you know, have students just email you out of the blue or, you know, come and visit you and they're full blown adults with proper jobs and 
it's just incredible yeah and you've you've been doing it for so long you must have seen a lot of you know you've seen people grow up turn into adults uh develop their own careers as well and that must yeah. be so nice you must be so proud yeah. yeah I feel like I kind of grew up whilst I <laughs> whilst I, you know I I mean I you know I first taught a lesson when I was 21 which is oh my crazy. goodness yeah it's crazy when you, think, you know, when you think about it you just think this is madness but because I'm young for my year and I graduated from LSE and went straight into teaching yeah and yeah I've I, I've I've you know I, I still work in the same school so I've really I've grown up and become an adult in the school that I work in I feel like you know I'm yeah so having worked there for over a decade I feel like um yeah you see the students grow but it's amazing you know thinking about like the colleagues that I've known for 12 years for example and you know there's weddings and babies and all sorts of things that we've all sort of been experiencing and stuff so it's pretty amazing yeah it sounds like a just a massive family really that you've sort of grown up together um and clearly you're so passionate and it's coming through uh, in this conversation that we're having right now but um you spoke about a lot of you know following your former students career journeys and I think you've posted in the past as well some conversations and feedback that you've received from former students current students about how much they love your teaching and how unique you are and that sounds pretty incredible um not many teachers get that sort of recognition so yeah you're 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 a passionate historian who's always looking to highlight diverse stories of less well-known and and sometimes sidelined or forgotten historical figures uh and you run the history the history sorry the history corridor on instagram which you co-founded with other teachers in your school i understand yes yeah uh and it's got over sixteen thousand followers now and it showcases a lot of the diverse history uh, that you teach that your other colleagues teach as well it would be great to get a bit of insight from you on on why Mm. you think it's so important to you and to school pupils uh and I mean, it's been a while for me since I set foot inside a classroom, <laughs> but from my understanding, there is a tendency, and I think you've spoken about this as well in a lot of your work, uh, a tendency to be tokenistic when it comes to teaching diverse history, yeah. with usually maybe one or two lessons being planned around world history about, you know, mm-hmm. one or two figures, for example, yeah. glossing over Windrush or the glorification of the British Empire, yeah. but without any revelation of its effects of exploitation, racism, yeah. et cetera. Um, the relevance of these isolated stories is then sort of buried within the broader curriculum mm-hmm. without proper yeah. reflection. Uh, and I understand that the message that you're trying to get across is that race is not a separate issue. It's part and parcel of British history. It needs to be recognised as such. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to get more insight from you about your work uh, and what you've been up to in recent times. Yeah, I think what there's a, quite a few things that you've said that I think is so will, will resonate with lots of people. So I think you know, one of the things is definitely this idea of sort of tokenistic and this this idea of sort of othering experiences of different people. And I think, you know, what can what can tend to happen is, you know, that schools might sort of roll out, you know, oh, we're going to talk about some women on International Women's Day or, you know, we'll we'll just talk about Black History during Black History Month. And once we've done that, that's, you know, that's a tick box exercise. And that's kind of and that's kind of it. And I think I think the thing, is, I, what, you know, what I always say to schools is, I think actually it's it's the old national, well, the current, really, the current national curriculum, uh, certainly the national curriculum that was around when I first started training uh, as a teacher, it had diversity as a sort of concept within the curriculum, and what that did is it lent itself exactly to that tokenistic approach, 
um, because it was that idea that, okay, so you're teaching a scheme of work about, I don't know, you know, a certain topic or whatever it is. And, you know, cause, right tick, you've got to have diversity in there. So therefore it would be exactly like you just said, it would be a lesson here or there. Um, it would be what I would call bolted onto the curriculum, um, you know, and it would be othering that, that experience. Um, mm. And I think what's really, really important is then is, is delving deeper into actually what are the, because there will, there are so many connections that those stories have with, the context in which people are teaching anyway mm. um but obviously that road is a lot harder isn't it and yes. I always say to people that there's a difference between diversity in the curriculum and decolonizing the curriculum because yes. diversity in the curriculum is exactly what you just said it's slotting in those stories not necessarily thinking about the placement of them particularly but it's just the fact that they're there that's enough exactly when you yeah yeah. Whereas when, if we're thinking about decolonizing the curriculum, then what that's a, that, that's obviously the, that road is a lot more difficult. But the point of the point of doing that is that then what you're really thinking about really carefully is, well, actually, where should we be placing this this particular story? So I'll give you an example that, of something that I've been sort of changing over the last couple of years is thinking about um, the role of Commonwealth soldiers, for example, um, mm. during during World War One, let's say. Um, and so, you know, like I said, the old, the kind of, you know, when I first started teaching, it was very much that, you know, there was, I mean, there still isn't any, barely any information in, in textbooks about this for a start. So, mm. you know, a student can flick through a textbook of about World War One and never see a black or brown face. Um, exactly, which, yeah. Which is absolutely diabolical, number one. But, you know, so I, so what I would always do is make sure that we taught a lesson, you know, on the experience of Indian soldiers, for example, and a lesson on the experience of, of soldiers from the Caribbean, for example. And what I've been doing over the last couple of years is, is a lot of unlearning myself, actually, and then mm. realising that actually, do you know what, by doing that, it's othering the experience of those Indian soldiers and those soldiers from the Caribbean and not seeing that actually there are so many, obviously, connections between all of the soldiers that we're talking about so what I do mm. now for example is that so now when I teach a lesson on uh, you know food in the trenches for example I'll talk about you know the fact that Indian soldiers for example were were given um, flour to make chapatis for example mm. you know they were given yeah. they were given uh, they were given mitai you know they were they were given all of all of these things and similarly you know Caribbean uh, soldiers from the Caribbean there was lots of uh, there was lots of um, fundraising that went on to make sure that they were provided with spices and things like that for example because then what I want the students to see is I want to see that, you know, that the experience of of kind of white British British soldiers is concurrent with the experience of yes. Indian soldiers and Caribbean soldiers. And that's the point that it's not now just one lesson, one standalone lesson. But instead, it's really it's really demonstrating that that experience, the experience of war was a was 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 a, a was a united experience. Um, yeah. But it's also demonstrating the different, you know, the differences um, within that as well and I think and then, but the thing is is that, is that's really takes a long it takes a long time it, you <laughs> of know, course a long time it takes a lot of reading which I love you know and I love you know researching and finding out new things and, and things like that but I think the, the problem is you know a few things I think the problem first of all like I already said is is is, is te I have yet to find um, I know there's a few that are being written at the moment actually which I'm excited about but there I have yet to find you know a history textbook um that really does this particularly well. What the best thing that we, the, certainly one of the best things that we've got is uh, is the children's version of David Olasoga's book, Black and British, for example, mm. which is fantastic. Uh, but obviously it's not a textbook no. in, in, you know, in that sort of sense, but it is brilliant for you for, to be able to use in the classroom, which is brilliant. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that's what the problem is. I think that there, they're, you know, that in terms of what we think about, you know, is the current curriculum kind of fit for purpose in terms of a di telling a diverse stories? I think, 
the problem at the moment is, is it's down to individual schools and individual teachers to do the work. Right. Yep. And and so, you know, for example, in my department, I am absolutely blessed to work with teachers that have exactly the same vision as me are as driven and as nerdy as me, you know, to to want to find out, you know, find out all of these, all of these different things. Even even today, I was having a conversation with one of my colleagues about the fact that we really want to talk to year sevens about, you know, about ancient civilizations, for example, which we yeah. don't have time to do. We don't have no. time to plan that. <laughs> we don't have time to do that. But we've got really excited <laughs> today talking about it. We're like, yeah, yeah, we'll find some time and we'll do it before September, you know, but, but I think that's the problem, isn't it? Is that I guess that's the other thing with, with teaching history is that it's, you can't, you can't, you can't teach everything. No, um, because it's just not possible because we don't have enough curriculum time. But it's but a lot of the time I think we're teaching. There's no there's no time built into the school day. And I mean, when I mean the school working day, I don't mean obviously just eight thirty, three thirty. I mean, you know, the actual day. Mm. Um, but there's very little time. And so I think that's the problem is is it requires a lot of commitment and yeah. um, sort of, you know, and your own personal time to do this. But I think it's so worth it because for me like I said like I kind of indicated previously I think you know my I like I said I loved history at school mm. but upon reflection upon reflection you know we I think the only people of black origin we learned about certainly were American yeah yeah in, you know within the context of civil rights um yes. in terms of in terms of learning about anyone from the South Asian diaspora I mean anyone no. it's got to be only Gandhi and that's it yeah Gandhi I mean and obviously he's not he's not the diaspora obviously he's obviously you know but I think yeah. in terms of anyone from the diaspora you, you've got to be kidding you know no absolutely not yeah I don't remember any of that I mean no I was recently asked um I actually was a guest on another podcast and one of the questions they asked me was what is one memorable figure someone that you looked up to mm. who you learned about in school and mm. the only person I could think about um was Florence Nightingale who is obviously an amazing person for what she achieved um and I you know I, I really admired her because I that was she was a really big part really big focus and I remember in my history lessons at in mm. primary school I think and the fact that we shared the same birthday I think is what really sort of um resonated with me and that's why I remember her um but it'd yeah. be wonderful to be able to see you know myself reflected in mm. history textbooks someone who looks like was, me um yeah, from the same yeah, area yeah, as me definitely. so yeah definitely. well you know what actually what, exactly what you just said Tanya is something that we came up with this in the department must have been about two or three years ago and we had exactly the same thought as you as who do our students remember <laughs> yeah. by the time they get to the end of year nine because obviously not all students will necessarily take history GC because of the you know because of the options and things like that but most of them do of course but some of them don't <laughs> um, so what we wanted to do was to really think about actually you know who they remember so what we did is we added um, a question to the year nine uh, end of year exam which was based on everyone you've learned about in history at our school um, if you could suggest um, a statue to go in Parliament Square um, of one of the people you've learned about, who would it be? Mm. Um, and it was so, it would have been really depressing if this hadn't have happened, <laughs> but it was really <laughs> exciting that what happened was, is that so many of the students named women and people of colour that we've taught them about. That's incredible. Which was incredible, which was incredible. Yeah. And it, and it to show that actually do you know what that and you know just for, con for context for anyone who's listening my school in, in my school the we have 90 90 percent of uh, the students that I teach are from an ethnic minority background yeah so to see those students talking about people you know talking about why people who look like them and I think the key thing is also is you know every single person that they were talking about was it was a positive role model and they were able to explain why that person deserved to have a statue um so it's exactly what you've said, isn't it? It's, it's reflecting on our own school experience and thinking, yeah. okay, well, actually, what can we, 
what can we do? And there's so many things that we can do to actually make sure that students leave their, you know, if they leave their school history at the end of year nine, for example, that we've given them a really good broad and a broad curriculum, but also one that, you know, one that is not the same one that we learned when we were at school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds incredibly intersectional, which is exactly what decolonizing the curriculum is about. Mm. It's about adding that layer of intersectionality, making sure that history is representative of, you know, a lot of the time it's not always positive. And I think there's a tendency with British history to maybe shy away from, you know, a lot of the pillaging and a lot of the negative destruction that was, that was, you know, a a result of um, colonialism, for example. So it, clearly needs to be taught in schools from a well-rounded view that takes account of mm, all sides definitely, um definitely. i wanted to you know get a bit more from you about whether you think the british empire's legacy is maybe unduly revered, revered mm. and biased in the teaching curriculum mm. and whether the narrative of colonial history is too paternalistic in the way that it's told mm. i think one of the things that we've touched on already is is the problem with with textbooks uh, when it comes to the when it comes to the empire and I think you know the the most infuriating thing is that you know it will you'll have a you know you have a few pages that are about that are about the British empire and then at the end it will kind of lord kind of multicultural the multiculturalism as a as the well that's this is the only thing we need to talk about now is that but then what it would also do because obviously and what by doing that it doesn't acknowledge you know the 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 various intersections like you said of of issues that different different types of people have um, as if multiculturalism well that's it's done tick box you mm. know but I think the other thing is is that is this balancing idea and there's that you know it just seems to me that every single textbook that I've ever seen about the British Empire is desperate to balance the empire and for the students to leave with oh there were good things but there were bad yeah. things and they're equally balanced right and I think but that is wasn't. that is exactly what the and that's exactly and that's yeah. exactly what the problem is and you know it's so problematic when you think about the good versus the bad because often the good is very dubious as well Mm, so it will be you know classic you know what I'm about to say it's the railways um so you knew it was coming Tanya so (laughs) you know it will it will have railways what is the obsession with railway documentaries I just don't I don't there is such a huge obsession yeah it's so weird and it feeds into this it feeds into all of this but you know there's you know it will there's, you cannot balance railways which by the way the railways that were built in India were for the British not for Indians but anyway no. railways and then you can't balance you cannot balance that out with the Amritsar massacre or the Bengal <laughs> Absolutely family not. You, just, you just can't but that's what they're expected to do and it's just mad it's absolutely maddening and I think but I think this is because, and I'm going to steal, uh, I'm going to steal my, one of my favourite phrases I've heard, which is uh, from Satnam Sangera, who's an absolute legend. And, you know, he's been talking a lot about imperial amnesia. Mm. And I yes. love, I just love that. I love just those two words together. It just makes so much sense to me. And I think, and I think that's also what the problem is, is, is that, you know, if, if you're an adult, if you're anyone who's, you know, above the age of, of, of 18 or 20 or 25 or whatever, then you went to school, you may not have even learned about the British Empire, for no, starters. Not really, Which no. is mad. But no, if you yeah. did learn about the British, but then, if, but then if you did learn about the British Empire, you learned about it in a very, in, the, in this very sort of reductive balance sheet sort of way. Mm. And, so, oh, and so the reality of the empire etc is you you will only know about it if you have opted to find out 
exactly you've got to be you've got to be inquisitive and yeah. curious if, yeah because because it's not being given to us yeah and it's like, only brown people who or black people brown and black people well, who tend to be curious about yeah. it yeah because it's not it's not presented to us in nice easy ways you know there aren't lots of documentaries and films etc that reflect any of this really mm. uh, I think that's what the problem is and you have to and you have to seek it out so I think therefore that is why the British Empire absolutely is <laughs> is revered and continues to be <laughs> and will continue to be because because there's because if you really want to find out the truth you have to you have to seek it out yourself and also and then what you also got on the other side of that is the people that haven't gone to seek the truth about it they genuinely believe that it should be revered because they don't actually know any of the truths mm. and whether that is that is willing ignorance or whether that is you know a, a product of you know their own echo chamber or whatever it is but I think I think it's I think the, the I think the the narrative that we as a country have about the empire is is it's very alarming isn't it yeah, it's, it's heavily skewed towards, oh, we helped you, we were the saviors. <laughs> That's literally the yeah. narrative. And yeah, yeah. I'm actually, me- I've been meaning to read Satnam Sengera's uh, new book mm. because, yeah, I've heard some really great things about it. So, yeah. yeah it's, it's really brilliant. It's really brilliant. Yeah. And I just, and I just think, you know what, I, I've been, the lo- in the first, during the first lockdown, I was, I was uh, spending some time pl- like, planning some lessons and researching and, you know, partly for the history corridor and partly for lessons. Luckily, I, I can kill two birds in that way. Um, <laughs> and I did a lot of, I did a lot of, I, I wanted to find some, wanted to link some local history um, for the students. And so I was read and, and Satna mentioned it in his book, actually. And uh, it, he was talking about the, Wem- the Wembley Empire Exhibition, which is basically why Wembley became, uh, it, it, it's why, the, it's why the, the train station, for example, was built in Wembley was for this exhibition, which is, which is, crazy and that's mm. why if anyone who's, who's familiar with Wembley you know you'll know Empire Way for example which is the road that leads towards the stadium well, yeah that was there because of you know and that is named Empire Way because of the Empire Exhibition and you know the Empire Exhibition as you can imagine was well it was basically like a I always think of it almost like a massive festival um where what they what they've done is they've basically recreated parts of the Empire so it's almost like you were doing a tour of the Empire via mm. this exhibition you know, it's the first time that we had at Jaffa oranges, for example. In, yeah, in that's super interesting. That. Yeah, it's so interesting. But the reason why I think it's relevant to this is because is because I think that you know why why put on the why put on that exhibition? Well, it was to show off about the empire. But I think for so many people, for some reason, even though no one was you know no one no one who lives now was alive then anyway. But no, exactly. So like for some reason, that idea, that like jingoistic idea mm. about empire, and you know, it's rural, rural Britannia and all that kind of stuff. I feel like it's just it has it been passed on by generation to generation or is it just that we have we have not really attempted to grapple with it mm. and so therefore people still have very for want of a better word Victorian views yeah about them yeah around the concept of empire and all the good things that that it apparently mm. did um yeah, yeah but I it think... should be something to be proud of yeah, yeah. I mean, the public interest in decolonizing curriculum has been around for some time, but I think mm-hmm. it was definitely ignited and accelerated following the killing of George Floyd last year, followed by a growing consensus for you know anti-racism. Uh, that is to say, you know, going beyond just paying lip service and actively working against it. Uh, and as I mentioned before, I think you've been featured in a BBC report where you've spoken about the steps 
uh, that you're taking to not start teaching black history beginning with slavery, but to also mm -hmm. cover the existence of African civilizations way before then. Uh, and I wanted to ask you know, if you could give a piece of advice to history teachers mm. who want to embed intersectionality through decolonization in their teaching curriculums, what would that be? Great question. I think there's a, there's a few things that I, I always, always, always say to people, you know, please do not start teaching black history um, with slavery. Um, it's so important for our students to see Africa um, not just through the lens of the triangle of trade and through uh, the lens of empire. Yeah. So just through trauma. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, yeah, yeah, it's so exactly. Yeah. It's so, and it, it, and it, and it, you know, perpetuates so, so many things that we don't want the students to, to, to go to move forward thinking and I think you know so for example you know teaching the students about Mansa Musa you know the richest man who ever lived you know who had this epic uh this epic journey to Mecca and he had he had in a kind of you know people walking in front of him who were holding bars of gold literally you know <laughs> teaching teaching them about people like that you know um you know he was said to have uh, just demanded right we need to we need to build a mosque every Friday just mm. because he could because he just had so much gold that's yeah. what he wanted to do you know and we had I know teaching the students about uh, about you know the existence of people like Mansa Musa and you know the the amazing things that were happening in the in the you know in the medieval kingdom of Mali for example um and you know the kingdom of Songhai and all these other places it's so important and I think the same for me the same absolutely goes for India as well yes if India is taught in the curriculum it's so often just taught through the lens of the Raj yeah but god Mughal Mughal India is fascinating yes the students absolutely. love it the students absolutely love it I remember when we first I first started teaching it god so many years ago there was not a textbook about it it's mm. still not really covered in any textbooks at all but we you know my the rest of my department are as obsessed as I am with the Moogles now because we've all learned we've all learned with each other you know and it's so there's family drama there's the Taj Mahal you know yeah. there's 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 backstabbing and blinding and you know there's so many things it's absolutely it's absolutely fascinating and again it's so important for for the students to see that history um you know that you know that India exists you know that India had such a rich fascinating history before you know before the British got there yeah um exactly so I think that's really that's really important that context for me is really is really 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 important but I think also my kind of advice to 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 teachers I think would also be thinking really carefully about the language that you're using as mm, well yeah so for example and in fact this happened today actually um period five of my year tens we're back there um <laughs> and you know we were talking about voyages of discovery so hence the turnip chat we were having and um it was talking about the fact that under you know when queen when elizabeth the first was queen um that john hawkins um was as far as we know was the first person uh to officially um trade in uh in trade in west african people uh, in terms of the slave trade, mm -hmm. so he's the first person to enslave to enslave um, to enslave Africans for profit in within the context of the Triangle of Trade, officially. Um, and in the textbook, it used the word slave. Um, and so, I you know I said I said to my and I read it I read it aloud, but I said I said enslaved people, uh, and I said to my attendant, "Did you notice anything? And you know, did you, what did you notice? Yeah, yeah. Did you notice that you said enslaved people instead of slave and we had a, you know we had a conversation about it and I think and we you know we've had the same conversations with our year eights this year when we've been talking about when we've been teaching them about slavery um you know about the importance of we're going to we are collectively going to use the term enslaved people not slaves and you know I'm so proud of the fact that you know if they if we ever do use a textbook for example which is not very often but if we do and it does say the word slave they will just correct it 
when they're speaking, yeah. Yeah. which is amazing. Um, but it's interesting because we've had similar conversations with the students about, you know, this idea of explorers, right? We have this kind of obsession in this country with all oh, these people explored these different places. <laughs> like Christopher That's Columbus just, exploring, yes, quote unquote. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And, yeah, and I remember one of my year eights just put his hand and said, well, they were exploiting, weren't they? <laughs> well, then, well so, yes, they were indeed. We can, you can. You can write that down if you want to, you know, but I think, I think, yeah, I think going through talking to the students rather than just saying to them, we're going to be using this term, but actually getting, getting them on the journey with you of saying, you know, are you, you know, and saying to them, look, these textbooks use the word, use the word slave because mm. that was, because they did, they, it, you know, because we are now thinking far more carefully about the language that we're using and they totally get it and they totally get it. So I think, I guess that's the other thing as well is that the other, and I've kind of touched on this already, which is, you know, there are some seriously outdated you know resources and textbooks out there we have mm, quite a few that yes. are relegated to what we call the history cupboard um and they are not to see the live day <laughs> anymore for that reason so, gathering some cobwebs <laughs> yeah there's just a few, some books in there they're like no we won't be using those we can't sell them to anyone so we'll just leave them there um you know and I think that's the thing is that the, the lack of the lack of material and things like that make does make it does make these things difficult but you know we are so lucky. We're so lucky to be teaching in a time where there are just so many amazing historians, and mm. and, and you know, not but also not just historians, but just you know, so many people write really writing such fascinating histories. Uh, so one of my favourite examples is Kavita Puri's um, yeah partition. Yeah, yeah, I read that recently right. as well. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and she's just and she's so she's so wonderful I've been so lucky to work with her a few times actually and she's oh, just brilliant and, and again I think you know she's some she by doing that she has paid she's she's done she has she's done something for for the diaspora in a way that I don't think anyone else ever has no I completely agree she spotlighted those experiences before it was too late yeah and I think that's what's so important that generation dies yeah, yeah absolutely um, and the thing is I think it's so important what she highlighted because a lot of the time with that generation they don't talk about that stuff very openly so absolutely. the fact that she was able to get those interviews and get people yeah. to open up to her about their stories is just so absolutely incredible um and yeah definitely. you're absolutely right there's nothing like it out there um when it comes to spotlighting that yeah yeah definitely definitely yeah, I mean, there'll be no doubt, as you said, there'll be areas within the curriculum, which is pretty dry and can certainly allow for, you know, a bit of creativity and spotlighting mm -hmm. new voices. Uh, and there might be some material which is outdated or overly recycled and that void can very easily be replaced mm. with something, you know, equally, if not more meaningful and, and significant. And you've illustrated very helpfully how that can happen um, for, for teachers. Um, and it's incredible that we have access to so many more resources than we, mm. than we probably had maybe 10 or 20 years ago and yeah I think we should be using that to our to our advantage really um definitely also, and I think it goes, yeah. yeah it goes back to what you said about intersectionality isn't it which is that, yeah. you know if you look, you look at a specific period of time and you know you just have to ask yourself a few questions like where are the women in this story <laughs> you know, exactly example, because so often women just feature in the curriculum in during the suffragette movement yeah yeah as if, as if women didn't do anything. Like they didn't exist before, at all before then. No, as if they didn't <laughs> exist before then. And then once they got the vote, which, which, and then that was it after that as well, you know, yeah. which is just simply not true. And it, you just, exactly, it's about, it's just about literally asking the simplest of questions. But also, I think it's also about thinking, just like, like I said before about different parts of the world, it's also about thinking about, okay, so for example, that Mansa Musa example I gave you, we all yeah. learned about, um, you know, we all learned about 
William the Conqueror and the Battle of Hastings because it is very important. Yes. I, I will tell you that. You yes. know, William the Conqueror is the last person to conquer this country. So it is very important. To, Absolutely. You know, the, Norman, yeah. the Normans changed so much about this country that is still relevant today. So it's, it's incredibly important. But also what's really important to also to understand is that there were loads of other things going on around the world. Yes, exactly. When, he, when that was happening, you know, like Mansa Musa, for example, in medieval Mali. So it's also that. It's also about thinking about, okay, well, we're learning about this. But what was happening in Asia at this particular time? You know, mm. what was happening in in west africa or south africa you know, what was happening um it's another it grew another good way to to bring in some interesting mm. kind of different contexts i guess mm. so the the significance of it is about diversifying the curriculum so the history is about world history as opposed to just being focused on uk history or british history and to be honest i can draw parallels uh, with the us because i lived there for for a while when i was mm. between the ages of 12 to 14 and the history it was world history but all we mm. discussed was us history and <laughs> the development yeah. of the states um you know the the 13 original colonies mm. um and all of that stuff christopher columbus uh, and when we got to the native americans it was very quickly glossed over mm. um but yeah. obviously when i was that young i didn't really think about it but now yeah. i reflect oh, on it i'm like yeah why didn't we discuss any of this why yeah. was it just you know basically yeah, skipped absolutely. over um, the thing is with british history it's even more important to do that because of the empire yeah so because of the empire it's even more important to ensure that students have an understanding of these other contexts because because Britain con- because Britain conquered so much so many of those places yeah exactly and you know equally it's it's not lost on me that the way in which we access information today has changed profoundly uh we're in an information age you know social media is saturated with facts with opinions with controversies and conspiracies which can confound the truth creating misinformation or even disinformation so that might mean that children and young people are misguided about what they read and understand which can be particularly dangerous I think because they lack the foresight and the intuition that comes with age and experience Mm. when it comes to distinguishing fact from fiction Um, and within that context I mean how can teachers uphold integrity and objectivity when it comes to teaching history I think even without talking about teaching history, I think it's just it's so important to make sure that you are kind of that we as as teachers and and educators, but also if you're not a teacher listening right now with family members, everyone's got cousins, you know, younger cousins or siblings or whatever it is. And they are consuming a lot of random stuff on the Internet. And the best example of that is is to do with coronavirus. Right. The the things that my form have told me. (laughs) about the vaccine you know about the vaccine first of all and, and I, I tell you I my form are you know they they are they're incredibly smart individuals they really really are you know so you know these are not pupils that you know that that you know do you know do very odd things or whatever they're, they're really really these are really smart kids and yet they will tell me the most baffling things about the <laughs> vaccine or about their fears of of being of you know of doing the lft tests because they're worried that you know the they're worried about you know so many so many things you know so many things and i think in general i think we all just have to communicate with mm. the young people in our lives yes um, about all of these things because actually yeah. we can all have a hand in it because I just think the more the, the more that we do that, the, because I think also the danger is, especially because of, lock, of, the, of the amount of lockdowns that these kids have been through, mm. is that actually they've not even been able to speak to 
speak to people that often no. really at all right and if, exactly. there, if there's a family zoom call it's you know parents and grandparents doing most of the talking right not not the teenager um so i think we we can all do we can all do things to to to, to support up the to support the students in that way i think yeah but i think in terms of teaching history and, and you know integrity and, and kind of upholding integrity and objectivity i think what's so fascinating to me about about teaching history is that history history is about interpretation right so yes. the way so you know when when you when you when you get to sort of a level history and you start talking about historiography you know you start talking about what well, we've got revisionist historians who think this or feminist historians who think this or marxist feminists <laughs> or think feminist historians think this you know and it's one of those things where history has always been has always has always had these schools of thought mm. right um and i think it's it's so important for us to to demonstrate that to our to our students as well and and to not to not think that well this you know a historian has written has written about this has written about this event and therefore it is true it's like no mm. we are we are really careful to make sure that we're saying saying to our students well this is a historical interpretation yes it's not it's not necessary it's you know and i think not necessarily the truth, that yeah. same skill can then be applied when the students are reading things online yes you know that critical like, well, eye. yeah exactly exactly and i think that and i think that's really really i think that's really really important as well i think yeah. just in general it's 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 a lot of it is about skills isn't it like you said it's about that critical thinking yeah and about questioning yeah just um, not taking everything at, a face, yeah. at face value but I think that can yeah. be really challenging because I, as a 14 yeah. year old I never thought about stuff like that so no. well <laughs> yeah. no not at all and you know what they they the, the young the sort of the young people that I teach I you know are very they're very different to the students that I taught you know mm. 10 odd years ago because yeah. they are they're like they have a life online yeah you know, they have and they have their own they have their own echo chamber yes there's there's not that you know and I feel like there's so much that is you know especially around elections and things like that there's a lot of stuff that's obviously written about adults and, and the, the echo chambers that we have but students have them too mm. right and I think it's really really important also to actually you know especially if you are like a cool older cousin or something like that you know <laughs> to actually speak to engage with engage with your with your family members about you know who are they following on tiktok who are they yes. following on Instagram, you know, yeah. and actually what, what sense, what kind of world do they live in? Yeah. Because actually, and then you can start to figure out, okay, well, actually they are consuming this kind of content all the time. And what can we, what can you do to potentially, you know, to potentially Counter balance like out? That. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's really, exactly. but I think, but they are, they, you know, I think generally teenagers are very curious individuals, mm. I would say. And I think, yeah. and I think also the other thing is, is treated, and in, in, in doing that, it's also about treating them like adults as well. Yeah, um, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. You know, yeah. And like I said, talking to them about, you know, the language that you're using, like we were saying before and things like that. Um, but yeah, we are teaching different students. They're so different to when we were at school, obviously. Yeah. But even even in the last five to ten years, it's a very, very different ball game. Mm. That's a really interesting observation. And Shalina, in your history research, what discovery have you made of the past that has surprised you the most? So I, I love this question and I think it has to be, it relates to what was something we were saying before, <laughs> which, is that, which is that for me, the best discoveries that I've made in the past are seeing that South Asian women have existed within the most familiar of historical contexts. Mm. So for example, uh, Safai Dalip Singh being within the suffragette movement or Noor Inayat Khan playing such an important role in World War II yeah or you know or you know knowing or you know when we think about sort of the more more sort of modern ish history when we're thinking about you know strikes and protests and things like that you know thinking about Jair Ben Desai yeah um, 
you know, and her picketing outside outside the the Grunwick factory. And for me, that's the most exciting thing. Those those are the things that really excite me because, like we were saying, you know, certainly, you know, South Asian women were, I would say, completely invisible from mm. any yes. form of any any aspect of the curriculum, apart from when you're thinking about arranged marriages. Yep. <laughs> or you know, <laughs> that feeling, right? That's the only time we were ever. Pe- well, that's the only time when people who look like us. We're yeah about and there's a tendency as well to sort of paint us you know with the same brush or with quite an old-fashioned brush mm. in oh that my goodness, definitely. yeah that we are you know passive we are submissive mm-hmm. We, mm-hmm. we don't really have an opinion or if we do we don't voice definitely. it and that yeah definitely. and it's so good that you you know through the history corridor you're able to showcase some of these amazing women who've played such a huge role in you know the two world wars which i wouldn't have known about if it weren't mm. if it weren't for that page so thank you yeah. so much amazing for, that, for providing that platform that was something I was really I was so keen to do uh, in the last over the last remembrance because I just think um I just think that there's you know that people from the you know people from the South Asian diaspora um you know um just there's so many of us that should be wearing a poppy in November Mm. for a very good reason but I don't see many people doing it yeah there's a sense of disengagement isn't there yeah definitely and I've purposely uh, myself and Matt my colleague we um, sell poppies together um, every year we've done it for about five or six years now and one of the reasons that motivated me to do it was because I'd never seen poppy sellers who were South Asian yeah I just thought why is that because two and a half million Indian soldiers volunteer you know fought in, in the second world war and why is that and I think that that lack of understanding you know and I I think whether that's also you know that's also a lack just a lack of understanding within the within the community I think in general isn't it and Mm. but that comes down to colonialism because of course you know though the people that fought for Britain in the the second world war it was exactly that because they were seen to be fighting for the empire where they don't have the same they don't have the same notions of remembrance that we do but they should but they should they should yeah you know because they were such a vital um, they were they were they were so vital in in both world wars. Um, yeah. So for me, it's that it's those familiar contexts, it's those contexts that everyone knows about, but it's just that we've never seen. I certainly have never seen South Asian women in those contexts before I became mm. a history teacher and found out about them. Really, yeah, I think that's a really important point, and yeah, a really important part of history. Uh, and I'm so glad that it has been highlighted. Uh, I wish it had been highlighted much sooner. Yeah. Um, and that leads me on to my final question, really. I mean, based on all of this, uh, the discussion we've had, and generally, it'd be great to get your views on, you know, whether you consider yourself to be a feminist <laughs> and what feminism means to you. Uh, so I think if, if you were to ask any of my students, is Miss Patel a feminist, there would be a resounding yes <laughs> um, <laughs> amongst all of the students, I think. Uh, I'm basically a card-carrying feminist, definitely. Um, I think what does feminism mean? Feminism to me um, is very grounded in my job. I think. Yeah. For me, I think it's, it, for me, it's about empowering, empowering young women. Um, yes. You know, to you know, to encourage whether whether that whether that is from the tiniest thing of you know seeing a shy you know tiny year seven girl that doesn't want to put her hand up mm. and just thinking I'm going to get her to want to contribute in my lesson. You know, even if just that, if, even if it's that's in a small way. Or whether that is, you know, I mean, God, this happened to me the other day where a student student came into the came into the room, burst into tears because she'd had a breakup. 
um you know and it was a bit and it was and it was like one of those things as well so I was really busy I actually needed the loo as well I was so busy <laughs> not the time but it was one of those things where I thought but and I reflected afterwards and just sort of thought you know what? I love the fact that that girl you know that particular could come student, to you yeah thought yeah. who do I need to go to I'm gonna go to Mitchell yeah. I'm gonna just she'll understand she'll give me a tissue and she'll, she'll let me sit for a bit you know <laughs> Uh, which is exactly what I did. <laughs> Couldn't oh, hug her, obviously, because of, yeah. of coronavirus. You have to stay away, but <laughs> yeah. I would have if I could have. Um, so for me, it's that. But it's also, and it's interesting, actually, because like I was saying earlier, that we we did a workshop today um, for, for the Year 13 students about um, consent and things like that um, in the context of them going to university soon. Yeah. And a lot of it was aimed at, a lot of it, rightly so, was aimed at the boys um, in terms of getting them to recognise behaviours that they may not consider to be particularly harmful, but actually they are. Mm. And for me, a big part of my feminism is is doing exactly that, is having mm. conversations with the young the young men that I'm around every day, mm. um, you know, and making sure that they are you know aware of the of the language that they are the, they are using and how and, and and the implications of it um you know and all those kinds because I think that's equally as important and for me their their allyship um when it comes to when it comes to feminism is so important because they are going to be the ones who go out into the workforce and can potentially make some of those positive changes yeah absolutely that generation then the upcoming Definitely. generation yeah I yeah. couldn't agree more it's it's about ultimately it's about empowering young women young girls and educating young boys uh, yeah and that's ultimately I think teaching is you know part and parcel of teaching is is about those things and I know that history you know, no doubt plays a huge part in in shaping intersectional feminism as you've very carefully very um eloquently highlighted today with all of your examples and maybe you've already touched upon this but it would be good to mm. understand whether there was a particular intersectional feminist piece of history which really inspires you and if so uh, whether you'd mind maybe sharing it with us Mm. So I, I love the fact that this was that you specified an, an intersectional um, piece of history because I think I love I love that um, that aspect of what you said. And so for me, it, it, my, my, I just thought, you know, what, I'll go with my what I've thought of immediately. Uh, so what I thought about immediately was OAD. So in 1978, um, OAD was formed. So it stands for the Organization of Women of African and Asian Descent. Oh wow! Um, and so this was this was an old group that was formed in 1978 and. Um, I've done, been doing a little bit of research about them because I taught uh, my year 11s about them uh, during uh, this last lockdown. And I love that I came across a quote, which was that they, their aim was to show people sisterhood in action. Mm. I love that. I love that quote. I think it's great. And they, they basically were a group. And I also love the fact that they are so intersectional because they were talking about women. We're talking about women of African and Asian descent, but also we're talking by and large about working class women. Yes. And that's yeah. what I love about this organization the is they were, yeah. they were formed specifically to provide a platform for the specific issues that working class black and Asian women were going through. Mm. And they just did the most, the most huge, they, had the, they, they involved themselves in, the, in such a plethora of different issues. So they were, they were involved in getting involved with education, for example, they were involved with um, rights in regards to health, for example. So I came mm. across, they, they had a they had a like a newsletter and for example there was a whole issue that was about the implications of the recent abortion legislation specifically on black and asian women mm. and the impact it would have on them um they would support any um any groups of women that were on strike they campaigned to, to scrap the sus law as well which obviously obviously disproportionately affected young black men um and one of the things that i think is um which is which is awful that they had to do but is, is great that they got involved in it is they were one of the groups that, that organized a sit-in at Heathrow airport 
um, to protest against the virginity tests. Oh, um, yes. Yeah, I heard yeah. about that. Yeah. Yeah. So they were and that was all to do with, you know, the British government essentially not believing that, um, that you know, women who were coming here, you know, it was also with visas, basically, and they didn't believe they thought that they believed that some of these women would already be, would already have been married and just, yeah, lots of things like that. But I think they are, they're just an, an example of of a true intersectionality, I would say. Mm, it's a double um, burden of sexism and racism at play there. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the fact that they took matters into their own hands. And, you know, mm. these women, I just think, in the, you know, in the 70s, God, these women would have been doing so many other things. Yeah, they all would have been, presumably would have been working jobs as well as, as well as, you know, looking after any sort of children and family that they, that they had. But the fact that they found the time to organise, resist, you know, forge solidarity, I think it's, it's it's just really amazing really, and yeah, I, I, I think they're not very well known it was really yeah. hard to find information about them I have to say mm. uh when I was researching for my for the students yeah but, I mean I, I hadn't heard of them until you yeah. mentioned it today there's, yeah, some, that's... there's some stuff out there so yeah OWAD um OWAD, O-W, yes. O-W-A-A-D. really fascinating fantastic hope the listeners take that away and start googling yes. <laughs> please find um, things out for me and uh, contact me on the history corridor because I'd love to know more about them Amazing. Well, it's been a really fantastic uh, chat with you. And I was going to ask you, I usually ask my guests at the end of the podcast to maybe share a quote from a book that they recently read or, you know, explain how they relate it to any feminist theme or anything else that they feel very strongly about. So if you've got anything like that, it would mm. be great. I think you've already mentioned yeah, well, a quote. Yeah. There was, yeah, there was a quote that I had read, but I think this, I saw, there was actually, um, a student of mine bought me um, a book called Women of Resistance, poem, Poems for a New Feminism. Oh. Uh, so that's why I laughed when you said, do your students consider me a feminist? I think they definitely do. <laughs> yeah, definitely, <laughs> um, without a doubt. And there's loads, there's loads of poems in here. And I, there's just, there was just the first stanza of a poem. And this, this poem is by Denise Froman, and it's called A Woman's Place. And I'll just read you the first stanza, which just says, I heard a woman becomes herself the first time she speaks without permission. That's beautiful. And I just, I loved that. I really, I love that. And I think the reason why I think because it's so applicable to history as well, because women in history, the women that we learn about in history, they, they, they did exactly that. They made they noise. Spoke, they, when... they made noise. They spoke yeah. without permission. But yes. there's also so many women that, that spoke without permission that we don't know about because exactly. it wasn't written down, you know, or it wasn't passed down verbally because it wasn't deemed to be important enough. Um, and I just think there are so many, you know, I, you know, I, I always talk about the fact that I try to uncover hidden history, but there's a lot of lost history out there. Yeah, that absolutely I is. I feel like we're ending on a depressing note, but <laughs> I just mean to... <laughs> no, but that quote was really inspiring and really uplifting. Yeah. Actually, I think anyone, yeah, it's any woman can relate great. to it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think finding, finding, yeah, finding your voice and yeah, speaking without permission. I think we've just got to, we've all just got to keep doing that. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Well, Shalina, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you today. I've, I've learned so much in the space of 40 or so minutes that we've been talking. Um, you're an absolute inspiration. Uh, the passion and the energy and the enthusiasm that you bring is just incredible. Like being a teacher, you know, it's not easy. Uh, and the fact that despite all of the, you know, it's actually intensive labor, isn't it? Having to get up early, having to roam around the classroom every yeah. day. Yeah, I yeah. feel like people see my life and they're like, your teaching life is weird. Like you do like, <laughs> I do unusual stuff. Like I do, you know, podcasts and I'm, you know, on, in, in the, in the Guardian and, you know, on, on the BBC yeah. or whatever. But, you know, but How do you find the time? Uh, it's, it's a little less, not sleeping enough, Tanya. That's what it is. <laughs> not sleeping enough, but 
honestly if anyone is if anyone's listening and just thinking I could give teaching a, a go mm. honestly it is the it's the best job in the world it's bloody hard work it's yes. so hard it's so hard but I have not left in 12 years because I can't imagine doing anything else yeah that's it's that's brilliant. amazing because at the moment there's there's a big consensus around leaving teaching or saying that yeah. you know it's Absolutely. it's so much hard work and that people yeah. don't feel rewarded um mm-hmm. that's Definitely. the sort of um, narrative that I hear from you know family friends uh, people who've just started teaching people mm. who've been in teaching you know for a few years but are now considering doing something else but it's so reassuring to hear your perspective uh, and the fact that you encourage it and that you've been teaching for so many years and still you know unashamedly love it and um, your clearly your energy levels just keep on rising so um, that says a lot about yeah your work uh, and your enthusiasm for teaching so yeah thank you so much for sharing your views with us today uh, and all of your insights um, from all your history uh, research no problem and thank you so much for having me you have such interesting you have such interesting guests on your on your podcast so thank you so much for asking me Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. I'm really glad that you think that. Um, yeah, I'll try and be as diverse as possible. And yeah, share as many perspectives as possible, because I think that's ultimately why I started this podcast to, to showcase those unique perspectives and, you know, underrepresented groups. So I'm glad that I am able to fulfill that objective through definitely. the podcast. Definitely. So, you definitely are. Yeah. Thank you so much. And until next time. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you know someone who you think might like this podcast, then please let them know about it. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you hit the subscribe button and you'll be notified as soon as a new episode goes live. Earlier this year, I created a Patreon. I produce and host this podcast entirely on a voluntary basis, all on my own. If you enjoy listening and have benefited from this podcast, then please consider supporting it so that it can continue to provide you with engaging and meaningful content. I'd also like to take this opportunity to give a shout out to four of my lovely Patreon donors, Abigail, Rihanna and Alicia, as well as my fiancé, Nathan. Thank you so much to all of you. If you'd also like to donate, you can do so by heading over to patreon.com slash brown don't frown pod if you have any thoughts or comments or would like to get in touch and contribute to the podcast please drop us a line at brown don't frown pod at gmail.com thank you so much for listening until next time bye